right, well, if you want to turn in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. This week marks the conclusion of our series, Sanctifying the Ordinary. I actually worked out, God, that was a really dangerous damn well. That was nearly like a really embarrassing moment in Sovereign Grace Life. Um, it, we've actually done 15 weeks on this topic, which I was surprised about when I added them all up this week, but we've done 15 weeks all together, and we have covered a lot of ground, just trying to help us all see, by God's grace, how we can make things so ordinary, but actually there's extraordinary even in the ordinary, and God moves in amazing ways in the ordinary. So we looked at words, decisions, fatherhood, disappointment, baptism, the Lord's Supper, giving, friendship, the Bible, work, sleep, trust you've all been enjoying the gift of sleep since that message, prayer, church, and last week just Mark did a great job of, of conflict. So we've covered a lot of ground in our, in our short history together, but today I want to look at all of them together and then take on the topic of change. How do we actually change? We come out week after week and we hear messages on sanctifying the ordinary, and if you're like me, most weeks you're convicted of something somewhere in there and you think, that, man alive, that is so helpful, I need to allow that to affect my life. And then Sunday afternoon you feel a little bit tired, so you have a little rest on Sunday afternoon, spend time with family and so forth, and then Monday, just the, the week goes ahead as normal, and you get really surprised at the speed of your week, and then we sit at life group and go, my, the week's going so quickly, the year, it's Easter next month, you know, we just, we talk about how fast the year's going, and then we arrive the next Sunday, and we go, oh, what's it on this, oh, it's on conflict, oh, I'm so convicted of something, I need to change it, and the week goes on again, but change doesn't necessarily happen at all. We just feel a sense of conviction on the morning. And, and sometimes, if we're honest, I think we cannot know how to change. How do we actually go about changing in that area of my life that the Lord seems to have, through the Holy Spirit, put His finger on in my life? How do I actually change by His grace and for His glory? So the topic today is change. And I want us to read from verse 17 of chapter 4 through to the end of verse 24. It's the Apostle Paul writing, and he says as follows. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity. I thank you for its commitment to us. Lord, I thank you that it really is all that we need. And so, Lord, as we sit once again then under your word, our Father, would you minister to us? Would you help us to build clear criteria into our lives on how we change? And then as your Holy Spirit puts his finger on certain things in our lives that need to change, would you give us grace for that change ahead? So, Lord, help us in our understanding. Help us in our motive. Help us in our passion. We do want to live for you, Lord. So give us grace for this task. In Jesus' name, amen. There are some things in my life that really aren't my preference. In fact, they're not only not my preference. They're things that I really don't like. And so, say, for example, first up, the dentist. I mean, the dentist is hideous. And, and even though your mum tells you when you're a kid, it'll be all right, it doesn't hurt that much, you go in and it kills. It's absolutely horrendous. And you think, that is just shockingly bad, and I'm not going to do all that for a sticker, I'm going to need more than that. And so you're sitting in the waiting room, and already you can feel, uh, for me anyway, I can feel cold sweats coming onto my, onto my body, and all you hear in the background is, and you think, oh my gosh, that's going in my mouth. But you know it's not going in your mouth because it's only a checkup. But you feel that it is going to be going in your mouth and you freak out. In Britain, it only costs five pounds, which is about $7.50, to actually book an appointment and then cancel it. 
I cancelled hundreds of these things. You know, I never told Emma. I just went, oh, how did he go? Oh, very, very good. But I never went in because it's just such a horrendous moment. I hate dentists. One of the best things about heaven, having met Jesus, will be, which will be the ultimate moment, having had a look around, which will be incredible, will be to look dentists in the eyes and go, ha, you're fired. You know, that will be a great moment because there'll be nothing for them to do. I hate dentists and the work they do in your mouth. Another pet hate is unlevel pictures. Slightly different, but I do have a sense of OCD in my life on occasions. And there's nothing worse than when you're, when you're, when you're counseling somebody in their home and just above them <laughs> is a picture that's at an angle and, and, and you're trying to care for them, but your eyes are very much going to the picture that is, has got a gravity problem. And I, that's a real problem. And you have to wait for that individual that you're seeking to counsel to go to the toilet before you quickly jump up and try and rearrange the picture. I, I just find that really irritating. So do me a favor. Now that you know that, when I come to your house, don't, don't put them all at an angle just, to, just for fun because it, it teases me. Brendan does this with the chairs because I actually look at this runway and, and I like them to be in straight lines. So Brendan comes in and he just pulls some out and you're like, that's sick because you just think that is it's wrong. I, it's just so distracting. I, I hate that. I also, I also really hate vegetables. Um, no one's been clear yet the difference between a vegetable and a weed. And a weed is the curse of the Lord. So I'm convinced that a lot of people are eating God's curse. I mean, that is what vegetables are, particularly Brussels sprouts. They are just wrong and sick and should be banned from all Christians' mouths. But the ultimate thing, the ultimate thing that I hate, the ultimate preference is I really hate, hate clothes shopping. You see, I'm a man. I'm a man's man. And clothes shopping particularly when you have your three children and your wife wants to find a dress. That is a sanctification moment in my life like you've, you've never, never known in your life. We, we go into the shops, and my wife, who I love dearly, is just trying to buy a dress. But we go into the shop, and all I can see in the shop is what appears to me to be a jumble sale. There's just clothes everywhere, and, and Emma wants to look at every, every item, which is fine because she needs a dress. So we're looking at every item, and the kids are like, they're bored, because it's, it's been like 15 seconds, so they're bored. Uh, and, and the truth is, I'm bored. But then we notice that Emma has picked up... 15 dresses, and we are heading towards the changing room. That is a horrendous moment. I remember as a child, in the back of my dad's car, saying, are we nearly there yet? And we've all experienced that, have we not? As kids or as parents, the kids saying, are we nearly there yet? And you're like, son, no, we're only just pulling out of the drive, and there's going to be a long way yet. We've all experienced that moment. I still experience that moment in the changing rooms, waiting for my wife to come out. It's literally going to be about 20 seconds, but it feels like eternity in that moment. You just think... Is it, going to be, is it going to be long, my love? Um, I, I like them all. I, just, just buy them all, because i just got to go. I, I really find changing rooms very, very difficult. Well, this morning, we are going to attend a changing room. And I don't want you to find it difficult. In fact, quite the other. I, I want us to attend this changing room, and I want you to, in the right sense, fall in love with this changing room. I want you to understand this changing room. Because this is no other than the divine changing room. And that's what Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24 really is. It is a divine changing room. It is the Apostle Paul, and the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penning for us, how do you really change? How does change actually come about in your life? How does that process work? Having identified where you need to change, how do you actually change. And there's four things then that I want us to examine from this text. Four things that I think, if we understand, will have a life-changing impact on the process of change in our lives. Here's the first thing. Number one, from the text, change takes effort. It takes, takes effort. It takes energy on our behalf. Now, to see this point, we have to first dig into the background of this passage. You see, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is, as we saw a few weeks ago, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is really the glories of the church. It is God, in His amazing grace, actually saving us and then putting us together as brothers and sisters. The whole premise of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is the Apostle Paul preaching to us about our position in Christ. That's the whole point of it. And so he explains to us that before there was even time, God chose you. Before you even were born, God chose you for our salvation. 
At the right time then, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place. And through faith in him, which was also a gift, you've now been forgiven of your sins. They've been as f- removed as far as the east is from the west. You've been adopted into the family of God. You, who were once his enemy, and now seated at his table as his son, as his daughter. You've received the gift of the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance. And surely heaven will indeed be your home. Because the Savior who saved you now holds you. And one day he will return for you and he will call you home. And in the meantime, I've knitted you together into families, into local churches, through which, as you serve together and care for one another and go on mission together, the very heavenly realms will look on and turn and see the manifold wisdom of God. And the world and your communities should see Jesus. Where? Well, through you. And so all the way through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Paul just keeps coming back again and again to help us see that this is your position in Christ, saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but not anymore. You're alive in Christ, never to be removed from being alive in Christ, and such is the Savior's passion for you. He talks to us about our position in Christ. But in chapters 4, 5, and 6... He no longer talks to us about our position. He talks to us about our practice. He talks to us about how we are to respond in light of all that the Savior's done for us, in light of all that we will do, in light of how He holds us. He then talks to us about, listen, this then for you as Christians is how you're to respond in that. This is how you're to live in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. This is how you're to infiltrate these things in your life for God's glory. Now, from chapter 4.25 onwards, the verse after this text, from chapter 4.25 onwards, he starts to get really specific with us, okay? So he talks to us about marriage, how men and women are meant to operate within that. talks to us about parenting, how parents and children are meant to operate in that. talks to us about work, how bosses and employees and employers are meant to work and operate in that. And he gets very specific on certain sins. He addresses immorality and lying, and speech. He talks to us about very specific things that he wants to help us see that if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to live this out. These are the things that are important. But prior to that moment, in this text, he talks to us about the process of change. On a very broad level, he he addresses us and takes us into the divine changing room. Now, verses 18 through 19 then, by way of backdrop, The Apostle Paul gives us one more fly-past of the world. Look at it with me, verse 18. He says, they, meaning the Gentiles, which is effectively the world, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, no, Paul is not talking here about, about the whole world. He's not talking here about each and every person. He's not singling people out and going, oh, yeah, well, there goes another callous person, and greedy and worldly. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, in a general sense, as you look at the world, as you look at the Gentiles, it isn't great. There are, as he says there, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. They're not living for the Lord. They're not trying to live for the Lord. They're not even sure the Lord exists. And so in many ways, they're then working in the hardness of their heart and they become calloused and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He's explaining, look, worldliness in a world sense, it isn't pretty. It's very different to the calling on our lives as Christians. And why are they so different? Well, because they're hardened in their hearts. They haven't been made alive in Christ yet. They're ignorant in their minds and their behavior then naturally follows suit because they're just behaving according to their set of values and what they stand for as unbelievers. But in, verse chapter, in chapter 4, verse 20, Paul then explains to us about Christians and he makes it clear that, that their behavior is not to be yours and is not to be ours. He says in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And you'll notice there, there is an exclamation mark. Well, one of the things that I learned many years ago was Koine Greek, the Greek of the New Testament. There is no explanation mark in Greek. So what the English writer is trying to do is he's trying to help us see the strength 
of what Paul is saying there. In one word, this is what Paul's saying. No! That's what he's saying. Having contrasts to the world and the way they live, he's looking at the Christians and saying, listen, no! Not you. You are saved by grace. You are bought with a price. You are in Christ. You are now a new creation. And so as it comes to you as believers, people who have been saved by his abounding grace, people who have been forgiven and adopted and know that heaven is your home, no, not you. This is not the way you're to live. This is not the practices that you're meant to operate. You are not meant to be looking exactly like the world. And so he starts that whole section in chapter 4, verse 1, with these words, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In light of all that you've received, I then, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner of the calling that you've received. You know, the closest thing I've, I've seen to that is, is a scene in the Pacific. I don't know whether you've ever seen that series. Uh, Band of Brothers is, is part one of it. I lent it to Yui a while ago, and I knew he'd get addicted, and he did. And he gave it back about two weeks later because he'd watched them all twice. Um, because it's such a good series. And the Pacific carries on really part two of that. It, in the Pacific, the series there, for those of you that don't know, you follow a U.S. Marine Corps in World War II, and you follow them when they are fighting in the Pacific. And there's this wonderful scene um, later on in the series, in, in episode three, when John Bassalone is going to be awarded the Medal of Honor. He's done some absolutely heroic things, true story, in the Guadalcanal. Uh, he's served his country incredibly well. He saved many, many lives. At one point, he's carrying a machine gun with his bare hands, and it starts to burn into his hands, but he's just trying to save people and help people. And just as amazing heroic. So the U.S. Army has decided to give him a Medal of Honor, which is an incredible honor. Not many of them were given out at all. And so John Bassalone receives one of these, and the day before, his company captain calls him in. Because John Bassalone, although he's done heroics on the field, is actually a bit of a party boy as well. So he keeps getting drunk, he's got an eye for the girls, he's a bit of a jack the lad. And so his captain calls him in and he says, Son, this is the highest honor our country can award on a serviceman. So from now on, listen, so from now on, try to act like it's yours. He wants to help John see, listen, we are awarding you a medal of honor and you are in the U.S. Marine Corps. So you now need to wear this, but you need to start acting like it's yours. It should make a difference. People are going to be looking up to you, so it needs to make a difference in how you behave and how you act and what you're for. In many ways, that is exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying in light of all that you've been called to, in light of the fact that you've now received the Holy Spirit in your lives, in light of that you are now the ones that have the divine calling on your lives to go make disciples of all nations, to be the ambassadors of Christ. Oh my. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received then. What a calling. What an opportunity. And it's yours to walk through in your lives. See, Paul isn't saying here that we should be sinless, okay? He's not saying here that as Christians we shouldn't be people that struggle with sin. I grew up in the context of a church where they told us that you didn't need to sin anymore. So why were you sinning? So, knowing that you did, you pretended you didn't. But you did. And it was a nightmare. We do sin. And the Apostle Paul relates to that himself in Romans chapter 7. He talks about his wrestle with sin, and he says, oh my, this body of death, why do I keep on doing the things I don't want to do? And why do I not do the things I do want to do? He's the same one that said, I urge you to walk in a manner of the calling received. But he knows it's hard. He knows that it's going to take time. He knows that these are going to be things that we're working on for the rest of our lives. So he's not talking about some sinless living, some lack of struggle with sin. But what he is saying is, nonetheless, in light of the calling you received, there needs to be a difference. There needs to be a difference. So as people interact with us as Christians, they go, you know what? There's something different about you. You're different from me. You're different from my worldly friends. You're, you are different. 
there should be a marked difference in our lives. You see, change, to take us full circle and to the point, change takes effort. And we know that. All the way through Scripture, it's something that's taught. And you only have to read chapters 4, 5, and 6 to realize, man, this is going to take some effort on my behalf through change. And it did. It takes grace-motivated effort. Grace-motivated in that our change, your ability to change, does your ability to change earn your salvation? No. Does your ability to change or expediency in change merit your salvation or then value you as deserving of your salvation? No. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the standing of my salvation. So all effort needs to be grace-motivated. It's not adding to our salvation here. But nonetheless, amazed by that grace and compelled by love for Jesus, grace-motivated effort needs to take place. Amazed that he would do that for me, aware that he lives in me. I want to live for him. I want to grow. I want to become more and more like him in my life. You hear slogans then that I find as a pastor particularly irritating. Slogans like, oh, you really need to change in that. You just need to let go and let God. Oh, that sounds quite nice. I think I will. Or, well, you know what? This is clearly an area in your life that you really need to change in. You've just got to let go and let, let Jesus live his life through you. And you think, oh, I'll sign me up for that. I think, I, yes. Yes, I'll wake up in the morning and I want to sin, but probably not. I'll let Jesus live through me. And, and you just get this idea that Jesus is some type of poltergeist that takes over your life. and It doesn't work like that. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever talk like that. Within the context of trusting Him, we need to let go and let God. But in the context of change, when we see the Bible, everything in change always functions on grace-motivated effort. Live a life worthy of the call. Compelled by the love of God, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It always talks about grace-motivated effort. So if you ever hear slogans like, let go and let God, and realize it is heresy. And they will be enticing to you because most heresy is enticing to you. It sounds lovely, but it does not work and it is unbiblical. So point one, change takes effort. But two, change, change takes process. It takes process. Read verses 22 with me through 24. He says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This to Paul is the very heart of of the divine changing room, the process of change, the three-part process of putting off your old self, the way you used to live, renewing the spirits of your minds, and then putting on the new self, the new self that Jesus Christ has given you. That to Paul is the heart of the changing room. That three-part process is the process of change. And from, from, from what you understand from Paul, what becomes clear is if you want to change you have to engage in that process. That's how it comes about. No, I'm just going to let go and let God. Well, you're going to be waiting a very, very long time. The rest of us are going to be working on this process of putting off, renewing the spirits of our minds, and putting on. Because that's what the divine changing room is all about. Tell me, did, did Trini and Susanna get over to Australia? Did, do you know who they are? <laughs> you are special. Now, they used to have a show called What Not to Wear. Did that ever make it to Australia? You poor things. Did you see it? Okay, I've never seen it because it's horrendous. But I'm told, I'm told that in this program, you just all walked into that. I'm told that in this program, and I've seen it because of the adverts, in this program, what they do is they take individuals who, who just dress kind of badly. And particularly in Britain, you get some people on the streets that you're just like, oh my gosh, that is just absolutely shocking. And so Trini and Susanna would, would run up to them on their little high heels and they would say, we would like to give you a makeover. And this person feels really special. But actually, it's a bit of a ha-ha moment because we're going to take the mick out of you. But, but, but they try and care for them and they pull them in. And, and one of the things they do is they get to know this person to understand why they dress the way they dress. And at one point in the show, they take him into this massive changing room. On one side of the changing room, they have one set of clothes. 
In the middle, they have these big bins, and on this side, they have another set of clothes. Well, this set of clothes, as the person walks into the changing room, it quickly becomes apparent that that's their entire wardrobe. It's all the clothes that they wear, and so they come in and they go, oh, oh my gosh, it's all my clothes. You're like, yes, it's all your clothes. We, we saw it last week as well. It, 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 it's the way it works every week. And so they're shocked that it's their clothes, and Trini and Susanna make it clean. All those clothes, you've you got to bend them because they are shocking. But the good news is we've bought you all these new clothes. Start wearing them. Let's try them on. Let's see if you like them, and let's see how we get on. And that's how the show works. They give these people makeovers by taking their old clothes, making them bin them, and then putting on their new clothes. Well, in so many ways, that is exactly, literally, what Paul is doing here. It's the same type of mentality that he's talking about. Obviously, there weren't changing rooms 2,000 years ago, but nonetheless, bear with me. In context, he is talking about clothing, and he is talking about specific changing. So imagine the scene. Verse 22, imagine the scene. Imagine you, as an individual, arrive at the divine changing room. Now, you see a sign on the way in that says that change will require effort. So you're not going to enter into the changing room and just stand there and go, just going to let go and let God. You know, you're never going to change. You're going to see the sign that, that effort is required, and then you're going to walk into the changing room. And what you see in verse 22 is, you know what? All my old clothes are hanging there, man. And they're my clothes. And then you see in the middle these bins. And then you see on this side all these amazing clothes, which clearly Jesus bought for you and wants you to wear. And so you walk into the divine changing room, and Paul greets you, and he says, Welcome. Welcome to Ephesians chapter 4. Welcome to the divine changing room. Now, you understand it's going to require effort, right? You do. Okay, good. Here's the thing I want you to understand. You have been chosen before the foundation of the earth. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but Jesus has made you alive in Christ. You are adopted. You are forgiven. Heaven is your home. And so all that takes place in this changing room will not add to your salvation. Do you understand that? Yes, you understand. That's good. Okay, well, welcome to the changing room because this is where we work out our salvation, okay? This is the place where we seek to honor the Lord by walking in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. Paul, Paul, are they all my old clothes? Yes. And Paul, what are the bins for? Well, here's the thing. All those old clothes, I want you to pick them up and I want you to put them in the bin. He says it this way. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through your deceitful desires. So all those things, Dave, all those clothes, you've got to let them go. You've got to put them off. They're your old self. They're not what you were saved into. They're part of the way you used to live, but not the way you live now as a Christian. Now, you would hope that that would be really easy, right? Because they're old clothes. Who wants to keep wearing them? But the truth is, that's really hard. Because if you're like me, you quite like your old clothes. They may be sinful, but they feel comfortable. And they, they kind of suit me. And if I get rid of all those clothes, I might not even know who I am anymore. Because they're part of me. And, and how do I live without those clothes, Paul? Well, the Apostle Paul is smarter than you and I. He knows that. And so he says, you know what? You've got to not only put off your old clothes... You have to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's exactly what he says in verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirits of your minds. So you've got to put off your old self, but you need to be renewed in the spirits of your minds. See, what Paul is talking about there is that in order to change, you need more than just to get your head straight. He's not talking about an academic exercise of just filling your mind with as much godliness as possible that's going to try and in some way academically help you change. That's not what he's talking about. That's why he uses the word spirits of your minds. What he's talking about there is, if you will, the, the heart of your heads, the deep-seated philosophy reasoning of your heads. What he's talking about is, listen, when you take these things off, the very heart in your head is going to be challenged because you're going to think they're comfortable. You're not going to let them go. You're still going to want that shell suit that you bought 13 years ago because you still think it might come back into fashion. You're going to want these things and not want to give them up. So you've got to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And folks, when we do that, I think it changes everything, doesn't it? When you are renewed, when you spend time in God's Word and when you start praying before Him, it starts to affect the way you think. 
Your clothes that used to dazzle you don't dazzle you in quite the same way because you realize, you know what? That fear of man that I've worn for years, actually, I don't want to wear it anymore at all. And Jesus Christ died for that, so I don't want to keep wearing it. And that lying habit that I've had all my life that I just feel cozy with and not quite sure how to operate without it, actually, looking at it now, Paul, it it does stink. And you start to renew the spirit of your mind, seeing sin for what it really is, but also seeing Jesus for who he really is. The Savior who died in your place and is now committed to helping you in your change. And you see your life for what it really is, as a one, one chance in a lifetime to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. If you live a hundred years, that is nothing in comparison to eternity. We're, we're a squat in the ocean. And when you're renewed in the spirits of your mind, you start to realize, man, is the, if this is all I've got, and Jesus and God are so amazing, and these are my old clothes, I'll get rid of them. Because my life's too short to be faffing about with these clothes all the time. You see how the renewing of the spirit of your mind works? It's just a process of starting to realize what your clothes are, and who Jesus is, and who God is, and what your life really is. And Paul says, yeah, you know what? The spirit, renewing the spirit of your minds is important. That's why he prays for the Ephesians twice. In Ephesians chapter 1, he he prays that they would understand the hope to which God has called them and that they would grasp the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that they would grasp that they are treasured possessions and that they would comprehend the greatness of the power of God. And in chapter 3, he prays that they'd be overwhelmed by the love of God. He's praying, Lord, help them in the spirits of their minds. Help them to understand who you are and what you've done for them and help them to be amazed by this. And so you put off and you put off, you put off and you renew the spirits of your minds. And in verse 24, then we realize the third part of the process, the putting on. So you put off the old self, you renew the spirit of your minds and then you begin to put on. If you don't put on, you're naked. That's embarrassing. So Paul says you've got to put off lying then. Renew the spirit of your minds and put on truthfulness. Put off anger. Renew the spirits of your minds and put on self-control. Put off stealing. Renew the spirits of your minds and put on honest labor and generosity. That's what he goes on to talk about for the remainder of the chapter. J. Adams says it this way then. He says, putting off and putting on are two factors that must always be present in order to affect genuine change. Putting off will not be permanent without putting on. He's right. It's no good trying to attack our sin as if it's a fire that we're just trying to put out. It's not a fire. It's a piece of clothing as biblically defined. And Paul says you've got to put that off. And then you've got to come over here and you've got to put something else on. So if you're struggling with pride, put it off. Clothe yourself in humility. You're struggling with the fear of man? Put it off and clothe yourself in the fear of God. All the way through Ephesians, he's giving us opposites all the way through, saying you've got to put that off. You've got to put this on. There is no plan B for change. Change takes effort. Change takes process. Here's what else it takes, though. Number three. Change takes others. It just takes others. See, first and foremost in our lives, if we're going to change, we need the Lord, don't we? We need God. We need the Lord to help us. And praise God, when you examine this book of Ephesians, what you realize is he's everywhere. So Lord, I need you in my change. What Paul says is, oh, you got him. And so when you go into the divine changing room, you're never alone. He's already told us in chapter 1, verse 13, that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And Paul has already received from Jesus back in John chapter 14 that the Holy Spirit is someone who is going to come as the third part of the Trinity. When Jesus ascends, he sends the Holy Spirit a helper, one who he's saying, it's better for you that I go. I want you to have him. Because there's only one of me, But the Holy Spirit can be everywhere and can be everywhere in his fullness and he will be in your life in his fullness. And so when you enter the divine changing room, you never enter alone. You enter with God in your life. One who is forbearing, 
one who is patient with us in our change, the one who spins the galaxies, the one who has power to change things in a moment, one who has promised to never give us more than we can handle, and one who has promised that as you look to me, there will be grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. We never enter the changing room alone. It's never a changing room that Paul just says, okay, well, over to you, kid, close the door, and oh my gosh, how do I do this? When Paul closes the door, you're in the changing room by yourself with God. (laughs) And if there's one person you want in there with you, it is him. The one who has the power to change and give grace to change and mercy to change in your life for your good and his glory. So it's important to realize that we do need the Lord, but it's also important to realize how the Lord brings about that change. I think that's something we don't think about enough. So I know I need God, but what does that actually look like day-to-day in change? How does the Lord actually communicate intricacies to me in the midst of my change? Because I get the broad brush change, but what about the intricacies of my life? How does he communicate those things to me? What about care? How do I ensure that it's not just Jesus and me, but I experience Jesus in a very tangible way? How does Jesus correct me? How does Jesus encourage me? How does this actually work? I understand that God is with me, but how do I know he's with me all the time? How does that actually function in the New Testament? I'll tell you how it functions. It functions in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. It functions through the local church. It's never Jesus and me. It's Jesus and we. Is God with us all the time? Yes, So how will he care for us in those intricacies? How will he encourage us? How will he specifically correct us at times? Through others. Through the church. Through people that I'm linked with arm in arm. People who who I know love me, who care for me. With pastors who are generally trying to lay their lives down to serve the flock. With people who are seeking to bring God's word to bear in our lives. It doesn't benefit them to try and help us, eh? Because they love you, they they do. Through friends, through people that will come alongside us in our lives, through the church. And this is a truth that we see all the way through the New Testament. I pulled out some starting point material in the week. And it's one of the stuff that we do just on the importance of fellowship. I mean, just just listen to these. Just listen to these and consider your own life. Just some of the one another's of Scripture. These are commands. So Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, Be at peace with one another. Love one another, John 13. Be joined to one another, Romans 12. Be devoted to one another, Romans 12 verse 10. How's that going with you and your life group? Are you devoted to them? Is this something if God said, you know what, okay, I'm going to call you home right now. Okay, how did he go? Were you devoted to him? Oh. It's a command. Be devoted to the people that you're joined with. Serve them. Rejoice with one another, Romans 12. Honor one another, Romans 12. Weep with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another. Counsel one another. Actually sit together and say, you know what? I've got a thought. Doesn't it say this in the Bible about that? Greet one another. Agree with one another. Wait for one another. Care. Really care for one another. Serve one another. Carry one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Submit to one another. Bear with one another. We all have to do that at times, eh? Because the church isn't perfect. We have to bear with each other. Hear each other out on things. Teach and admonish one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Spur one another on. Offer hospitality to one another. And the list goes on and on and on. They're all callings in the New Testament to how churches are meant to operate for the glory of the Lord. It's no surprise then that John Piper says sanctification is quite clearly a community project. It is. God never said, you know, okay, into the divine changing room, all the best, this is great. Single file. He says, you know what? As a church, we get into that divine changing room together. We've all got the Lord in us. He's the primary helper. But there's going to be other people around us that are going to chip in and help us and say, hey, Dave, um, you might think that that's the new self shirt, but it is rough. I mean, you've got to put that off, man, because you need this. And oh, 
quite liked it. It was cozy. Yeah, I know, but you're deceived. It's, it's really not right. Okay. Well, can you help me? Because I quite like it. It's my favorite. We, we need others in our lives, don't we? Now, folks, for you and Sovereign Grace, I want to urge you, we really need each other. We desperately need each other. We need each other to spur us on, don't we? We need people in the midst of our sanctification, in, in the pursuit of our holiness, to encourage us, to correct us, to care for us, to pray for us, to at times cheer us on when we're just so tired. Just think, I'm trying to change, but oh my gosh, am I ever going to change? We need others to be in the midst of our group, say, you know what, you will, and God is faithful. And let's keep running together for the glory of the Lord. Let's carry each other where appropriate. We need others to spur each other on. We need people who can model things for us, don't we? People who we look at and we think, man, I so need to change in this area of my life. But I'm aware that's an area that, that this guy in my life group, he excels in. Oh, thank Lord for him. My friend, how did you do that? How did, were you always like this? Has this been an area you've needed to grow in? And how, how have you managed to help your children in that way? Because I ain't pulling that off. So how did you do that? We need that, don't we? We all need that. Mentors and models and people that are ahead of us that can say, you know what? Yeah, I get that. Let, let me help you. Let me care for you in that. And on occasions, I submit to you, we also need people who love us enough and care for us enough to help us see sin in our life that we've not even seen ourselves. To help us, as C.J. Mahaney would say, to see the cream cheese on our face. There's this wonderful part in C.J. Mahaney's book, Humility, where he talks of this guy. He's telling a story of a story, but the story is about this guy who is he's in an Armani suit. He's clearly this businessman. He's like all dressing really sharp. He's got his latest computer. He's got his posh briefcase. He's got his Rolex watch. And he checks his Rolex watch. He realizes it's time to go. And he stands up and he makes his way for the door. But the problem is he's just been eating a bagel with cream cheese on. And he's got this massive, massive bit of cream cheese on his face that, unfortunately, he hasn't noticed. And so he goes to the door because he's in a hurry. And he goes out the door. And, and, and everybody watches him go down the street. And the story's to say, you know what? Who's going to love that guy to tell him he's got cream cheese on his face? Well, you know what, folks, in our lives, we need other believers that love us enough and care for us enough to at times say, you know what, Dave? I think that might be cream cheese on your face. Because we don't see our sin 2020, do we? It deceives us. Sometimes we even think it's a good thing and we're just stewarding it. But we need others to come along and say, you know what, no. No, I don't think that's right. I, you know, here's a question for you. I th think that might be sinful. I wonder if that's the old self. Remember when Lewis came um, about a year and a half ago to, to this church to preach for us, one of my friends from Christchurch. And at the end of our time, he said to me, you know what? And we went out for a game of snooker and we played snooker. And he said, you know what? And I realized that it was a setup because he didn't really want to play snooker. Um, but he said, you know what? Can I just ask you a question? Do you mind if I make an observation? How do you answer that? Because it's tricky to say, I do, but thanks for anything. I mean, so of course you say, oh, well, you know, sure, that, that, would, be, that would be really helpful. Uh, but then in your pride, you think, oh, please be gentle, because, you know, you may be wrong. And he began to share, you know what, I've just noticed over this week that, that in the way you speak to Emma at times, it, it seems quite harsh. Are you aware you're doing that? And I said, mate, to be honest, um, I'm not aware I'm doing it, but Emma has mentioned it on a number of occasions. Um, but but I've assessed my heart, and I think I'm fine. And he said, well, I think as you reassess your heart, my observation would be, she's right. So what's going on in your heart there? Because I know that's, you're not like that usually. So what's going on? Are you not trusting the Lord for something? Are you anxious about something? Has something gone on between you? And, and he just helped me to see my heart. He helped me to see the cream cheese on my face that my wife had been trying to point out, but I ignored, that I'd probably been walking around with for months. Praise God then for friends like Lewis, who are willing to say, hey, can I ask about that? Praise God. That endured then a season which I appreciated because I was able to repent to my wife. I was able to bring others into my life group and fellowship and say, listen, this is something Lewis has mentioned to me. Could you help me in this? Could you pray for me in this? If you observe this when I'm with you privately, would you mention this to me? Because this is something I want to grow in by God's grace. And 
I'm grateful that I have people to ask to hold me accountable. I'm also grateful that I have people that will help me see the cream cheese in the first place. We need others. Folks, if you hear that story and you think, oh my gosh, I, I haven't got anybody that could help me do that. Well, give yourself to your life group and fellowship group then with fresh passion because they will be the people probably most likely to help you in this. But if you're never there, don't be surprised that they never mention anything. And if you're never there, don't be surprised that they never really open up their own lives to you. They could be having a great time, but you're not involved. You've got to be in it to win it, so to speak. We need others. We need other people in our lives. And number four, just finally and quickly, change takes time. It's a sobering point, but a truthful point that needs to be understood. I, I have the privilege of being a dad to my favorite three children in the world. Josh, who's my soccer player. He's a little lad of character, and I just love the way he operates in his life at different times. Amy, who is my question master, who consistently asks me things about, well, if God, if God definitely exists and is good, Dad, why the tsunamis? I think, you're, you're eight. You're not meant to ask these things yet. You're later on in life and just constantly wants to ask things. And then we have Lydia, who specializes in toots. They're all very different, okay? All my kids are, like, really different. And I love them all dearly. But one of the things that I found over years is that change takes time. Change takes a lot of time as I seek to care for them in their lives. And there's been occasions then when I've wanted to rush that change in their lives. I remember particularly when we had three small children or preschool, which I think is one of the hardest times you're ever going to go through in your life. So if you're a mother of preschool children, you have my prayers. I generally think that is a hard time. And your husbands need to be looking after you with great care because that is a difficult season of your life. But I remember during that season saying to Emma, why? Why are the kids just not getting it yet? Because I told them yesterday about this. And today, it's as if they've forgotten. And it would happen in numerous things. You're like, what, what is going on with them? So I'd actually sit with Emma and say, Emma, um, what, why are they still doing this? When I've addressed them yesterday and the day before. And Emma would sit me down and say, well, love, ever so graciously, because she is a wonderful helper. Well, love. Why does God keep asking you every day of things that you're taking time to change in? Okay, I won't talk to you anymore. Who else? Who else will listen to me? (laughs) Change takes time. Parenting takes time. You may be saying things time, time, time again. Well, I would encourage you as parents, graciously and patiently, tell them again. And if you think you're telling them too much, be aware, how many things in your life do you need to change in that it seems to be taking you a long time in too? Change always takes time. Jay Adams says, too many Christians give up. They want change too soon. What they seem to want is change without the daily struggle. Sometimes they give up when they are on the very threshold of success. They stop before receiving. It usually takes at least three weeks of proper daily effort for one to feel comfortable in performing a new practice. And it takes about three more weeks to make that practice a part of oneself. Yet many Christians do not continue even for three days. If they do not receive instant success, they get discouraged. They want what they want right now, and if they don't get it, they quit. Folks, we can't quit. Change takes time. You want to know how long? A lifetime. We're not going to get to some doddery people. If I have the privilege of serving as your senior pastor, say for 40 years, which would make me very old, that would make me too old. Let's go with 30 years. I will not be on the front row at 67, and you'll go, oh my it's like having Jesus with us. I mean, he's just grown in his sanctification so much. and Oh, let's just fall on his knees. It, there's still going to be masses of things that I'm going to be seeking to change in, as will there be with all of us. Change takes a long time. And so how then can I change? Well, we can change by understanding that change takes effort. 
to not let go and let God, which is going to actually involve our activity in grace-motivated effort. Change is a process. It's going to involve putting off the old self, renewing the spirits of our minds, and putting on the new self. All of that process is going to take others' involvement, others who love us, who care for us, who are involved in our lives. And even with that all said, we need to realize that change is going to take time. It's going to take a long time. So don't get impatient with each other when you're not changing. Don't get impatient with your kids when they're not changing. Don't, in the right sense, give up yourself when you realize, I'm not changing quick enough. It takes time. It takes a long time, particularly when sometimes we've been wearing a piece of clothing for 30 years of our life, and we realize, well, we can't take it off in three days. It's because it's kind of worn into your life more than you think. It's kind of in your very fingerprints. It's going to take time to peel it off. It's going to take time to put something new on. Folks, what I want to encourage you then by way of application, simply this, pick one thing, just one thing. God is forbearing, God is patient, and you can get overwhelmed if you go into the change room and just think, right, I'm having it. <laughs> and you get a group and you say, okay, hold me accountable to 643 things. And you just think, man, this is going to be, this is going to be pretty tough. Just pick one thing. Share it with your fellowship group, with your life groups. And then by God's grace, would grace-motivated change begin as you take that one thing to the divine changing room? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this series. I thank you that you have helped us see that there is extraordinary even in the ordinary. And things that we just take for granted and we, we pursue and see in our lives as just ordinary matters, you realize as you examine your word, they're not ordinary at all. But they're things that are important to you that you want to help us change in as we live a life worthy of the calling that you've, we've received. Oh, Father, I pray then that there would be much grace for us as a local church, that where change is needed, that change with patience and effort and others will, will commence. And Lord, did you help us then become more and more like your son? You have bought us with a great price. And so Lord, would our lives then, in entirety, truly be laid down in sweet sacrifice to you, for you're worthy of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.